Our scripture lesson this day is Revelation 12. Let us give attention to the reading of God's word. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So... When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the flood, after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river so that the dragon had swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the 
dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Victory through Jesus. Forgiveness through Jesus. Life through Jesus. Grace and peace through Jesus. Heavenly Father, you are God and there is none other. We come into this sanctuary this morning to give you honor and praise and glory and power. Receive our thanks and praise today, Lord God Almighty. Lord, we want to know you. And knowing you, we want to love you. And loving you, we want to serve you. And we ask that you help us do that because of this hour spent with your people today. God, we lift up a prayer for those who serve you here and around the world. We lift up a prayer today for peace in our lives, in our communities, in our country, and in the world. We pray for healing. Lord, we think of those who lost loved ones this past week at the Jet Propulsion Lab. And it reminds us of the pain and suffering and death of many around the world this past week. And we pray for those who grieve, that you as the God of all comfort might comfort them. We pray, God, for those who are struggling with their bodies and need healing, whether emotionally or mentally or physically. And we pray your healing upon them. We pray, Lord, that we might be renewed in spirit today and live this place understanding how much you love us, filled with the joy of that love and being able to spread that love to others. In Jesus' name, amen. It's also a treat today to have Dr. David Scholler bringing the word of the Lord to us. I think most of you know him, but if you don't, Dr. Scholler is a professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary but probably more famous for something else. Um, as he walked in today, Benson and I were talking to him about his appearances on the television, which uh, he's been on the History Channel talking about Scripture and uh, the books that didn't make it into the Bible. You may have seen him there as well. And uh, many who don't know you have seen you on the History Channel. So Dr. Scholler is going to come in just a moment to bring us the word of the Lord from the book of the Revelation. We have been reading through the New Testament as a church, and we're almost to the end. And, of course, at the end of the Bible is the book of the Revelation. And a long time ago this year, when I realized that I would have to preach Advent sermons and Christmas from Revelation if we stuck to our plan, David said, don't worry, I'll help you. And he has. He's really helped enormously. And so thank you very much, David, for that. And it's also good to have Dr. Campbell with us today. He's the retired General Secretary of American Baptist Churches and comes with his son Robin frequently. And uh, Bob, you were telling me just a moment ago that uh, the Shoulders joined the church under your leadership here when you were the interim pastor, I think, some time ago. And uh, so that's, that's wonderful. And uh, it may come full circle here as um, Bob is attending worship here now and as he's moved back into the area. So uh, lots of treats today, but... Dr. Scholler, come, and we're going to enjoy hearing the word of the Lord from you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Bob, I have on my American Baptist necktie today. It's always a joy and honor 
be able to preach in my own church. That's a special, special joy. And you're so indulgent. And I apologize in advance for some of my infirmities that may interfere. I didn't know that Steve would have in the bulletin today this little cream-colored sheet called Helps for Reading Revelation. I hope you've had a chance to review it. Some of this he covered in the first sermon on Revelation. And I was going to begin today by just recalling a few of these things. But since that sheet's there, I don't think I need to do that except to say that the book of Revelation is a piece of what we call apocalyptic literature. That is a kind of literature that is a revelation from heaven. A revelation in which the vista is opened. And John the prophet sees this revelation from Jesus Christ and writes in the book of Revelation in this particular genre. This genre is characterized by many unusual things. All kinds of strange animals with multi-heads and many eyes, different colors, signs in the sky, signs on earth, numbers. Book of Revelation is, in some ways, kind of an unusual, crazy book when one first looks at it until we realize that was a particular way of writing in this revelation genre. And it communicates in a very dramatic way some very fundamental things about the theology of the early church. And the book of Revelation was written to a group of churches, seven churches, in the Roman province of Asia, which is today the western part of the country of Turkey. And those were real people who received this letter. The famous author from a hundred years ago, G.K. Chesterton, once wrote, St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, but none so wild as one of his commentators. So those of us who try to comment on Revelation belong to a tradition that's often been kind of crazy, but I'd like to bring some sanity, if I may say that, to the interpretation of Revelation. And this sermon will be a little different maybe than some sermons because I want to try to help us grasp some of the images of Revelation. So we're going to do a lot with our Bibles that are in the pew So you might want to get out your Bible from the pew rack, and we will start on page 253 of the New Testament, which is where Revelation 12 occurs that Jeanette read for us this morning. The book of Revelation, in much of its history, has been treated as if it were a roadmap to the future. And that particular approach has led to many abuses. As I 
said, if I may say this now that Steve has commented on television, shortly after 9-11, I was on a little tiny debate on TV with Hal Lindsey. I don't know if any of you saw it. And one of the things I said in that television uh, program was that all these interpreters throughout history who have tried to use the book of Revelation as a specific guide as to what will happen have been wrong. Every single one of them has been wrong. And I think there's something to learn from that. The book of Revelation wasn't written to be a kind of 2004-2005 guide to the unfolding of human history. Rather, Revelation was written to a group of real people in real churches about A.D. 95 who were facing a crisis. And the book of Revelation was for them a call to discipleship. It was an invitation, an urgent invitation to be true disciples of Jesus Christ in the midst of a crisis. So we're going to look briefly at the crisis faced by the believers, the call given to the believers, and the culmination promised to the believers, and then raise the very difficult question of what challenge does that present for us today. Now the crisis faced by the believers, in the simplest terms, was a conflict of church and culture. The church by the end of the first century, probably constituted less than 1% of the population. Apart from our friends who are here this morning, who have come from Japan and lived in Japan, most of us have no idea what it's like to be a tiny minority in a country. Christians, for us, seem in our experience, to be a dominant culture. But in the first century, they were a tiny group, and they began to irritate some people in the culture by their approach to life. Because they believed in only one God, and they would not give any worship to the Roman emperor especially near the end of the first century A.D., in the Roman province of Asia, what scholars call the emperor cult was flourishing. Temples were built to the Roman emperor, and one of the duties of a Roman citizen was to go to the temple and make a little sacrifice for the Roman emperor and maybe say something like, Caesar is Lord just to show that one was a loyal person to the government. And the church taught that one ought not to do this, that Jesus Christ was the only Lord, and one ought not to sacrifice to the emperor. You'll remember a few weeks ago, Steve referred to the martyrdom of Polycarp, which took place a little over 50 years after the book of Revelation, in which this bishop of Smyrna, one of the cities here 
in the book of Revelation, in the province of Asia, was arrested and was brought to the arena to be killed. And he was asked if he would simply say, Caesar is Lord. And we had that great line, he said, how could I do that? When for 86 years I have served Jesus Christ, I cannot deny him now. And Polycarp was put to death. If we go back just a little earlier, we come to the province of Bithynia, which was just to the east of the province of Asia, in a northern section of what today is Turkey. And the governor of that province was a man named Pliny the Younger. And Pliny didn't know what to do with the Christians he was finding in his province. And so he wrote to the Roman emperor a letter. The emperor then was Trajan. And he said, Trajan, I've got some Christians in my province. Should I kill them? And Trajan wrote back and said, probably not. Uh, Pliny actually had sent some spies to a church service. And the spies reported that the Christians seemed like kind of a harmless group. All they did was sing hymns to Christ as if he were God. And they had some people serving one another. It didn't seem too threatening. Well, the conclusion was that Pliny the Younger ought not to seek out and kill Christians. But if a Christian were brought to his attention, then he would simply ask that Christian, to sacrifice to the emperor, say Caesar is Lord, and if the Christian did that, it was fine. And if the Christian refused to do that, then he or she would be put to death. Now that is part of the crisis, not all of it, but part of the crisis that's being described in the book of Revelation. More fully, was the larger cultural crisis. The Christians were being tempted to honor the emperor in this way, to fit into culture, to adopt the values of their culture so that they wouldn't stand out and be targeted for persecution, targeted for neglect and exclusion. And actually a conflict arose in the church Now, at the end of chapter 12 today, if you'll take your Bible, verse 17, we have in this chapter the description of Satan being thrown out of heaven, the dragon. And he comes down to earth and he attacks this woman who you will recognize symbolizes all at once Israel, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the church. And he chases this woman and her children who are the believers, out into the wilderness, and God protects them. But the last line is in verse 17, the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now that's Satan attacking the church. The children of the women, of the woman, is the church. 
They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Then in chapter 13, we get introduced to the two beasts. Now, the first beast, chapter 13, verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. The 42 months, by the way, comes from the book of Daniel. It's the same as 1,260 days or 42 months or a time, one year, a times, two years, and a half a time, a half a year. So they're all the same. A time, a times, and a half a time, 42 months or 1,260 days. It's an image from Daniel. So the beast was allowed to exercise authority. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Then in verse 11, we get introduced to the second beast. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, making even fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. We probably should read the next verse since we're all curious about it. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Now, this is my visa card, which you can't see. But the last three digits on my visa card are 666. There was some kind of divine hand working there. <laughs> you have to take this on my authority for right now. But in the book of Revelation, the beast stands for the Roman government, the emperor. And his image is set up in these temples. 
and the second beast who forces people to worship the first beast are the governors of the provinces who try to ensure that the citizens go and do homage to the Roman emperor and to have this number means that you are a devotee of the emperor. It's a number game. And 666, it's too complicated to explain, probably refers to the emperor Nero. Now if we go to chapter 2. You have to go back a few pages. Chapter 2. The letter to the church of Thyatira, beginning in verse 19. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, you know the name Jezebel from the Old Testament, perhaps. And she represents in the Old Testament a religion that is foreign to Israel, a false religion that many Israelites were tempted to follow. And she used her authority as the queen in Israel to bring people to worship her God. What is probably going on? This is just a typological name. There's a teacher in the church who is saying to people, it's all right to come to church and then go across the street and worship the image of Caesar. That's what fornicate means. It's not literal fornication, but fornicate in the sense used in the Old Testament of Israel being unfaithful to the true God. So probably what was happening in the church is that there was a conflict. Some were saying, you can have it both ways. You can worship the Lord Jesus Christ and do homage to Caesar and compromise with the culture. That's okay. But John is writing to say, no, one can't live that way and be faithful to Jesus Christ. Chapter 17. Race ahead. This is the famous account of the great whore who rides on the beast. The seven angels said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. That means the kings of the earth have cooperated with Rome. They've been subservient to Rome. And with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. Verse 6, And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints 
and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. The conflict between the empire and the church. Verses 17 and 18. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast, Rome, until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, there is no other option but that the great city that rules over the kings of the earth is Rome. Now, in this context, the church is called to discipleship. This is point two. The call given to the believers. I want to read just a few passages of the call, starting with chapter 2 from one of the letters. There are so many passages we could read. There are probably 40, but we'll only read a few. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then, From what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, probably those who are teaching compromise, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, Nike, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Verses 9 and 10. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 15 and following. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. By the way, the cold and hot refers to near Laodicea. There was a hot spring, a spa, where people went for healing. And there was also a city nearby that was known for its pure, cold, wonderful drinking water. But Laodicea was known for tepid, lukewarm water that gave you a stomach ache and a lot of other things we won't mention. And so the image here is, I wish you were like one of these good sources of water. Instead, Laodicea... You're lukewarm. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. 
you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white robes to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place on my throne. This is the call to discipleship, and it's repeated over and over in the book of Revelation. Maybe one more example. Chapter 7, verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the call to discipleship. Be faithful no matter what the cost. And if one is faithful, then we come to point three, the culmination promised to the believers. There's a reward Chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. In other words, those who remained faithful to Jesus Christ. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. And they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy and all nations will come and worship before you. For your judgments have been revealed. And then chapter 19. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and all who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of many thunder 
thunder peals crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. This is the church, now united with the Lamb, shouting hallelujah, the culmination promised to believers who have been faithful, and they get to put on their white robes. And what are the white robes? The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's not very hard to understand. The image is clear. What clothes one for being united with the Lamb are the righteous deeds of the saints. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ in the midst of a cultural crisis. Now, the challenge that comes to us is really difficult. It seems clear to me that we can understand the original setting of Revelation. Believers in a crisis in late first century Roman Empire, matter of allegiance, a matter of recognizing that they aren't rich and comfortable, that they are really poor and naked and blind, that they're dependent on God, they must follow Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost. And we've seen this play out in some other contexts in the history of the church. We can just name a few. The church that was faithful to Christ under the Nazi regime. Not all the church was faithful. But there were those who understood what was deeply at stake and at great cost to themselves stood for Jesus Christ. Or apartheid in South Africa. It seems clear to us now in hindsight that the church that opposed apartheid was the church that was faithful to Jesus Christ in a cultural conflict. Even at great cost of imprisonment and torture and suffering, and South Africa is still reaping the terrible fruits of that. Or we can think of Christians who went underground in communist China or communist Russia who worshipped, many of whom nurtured themselves on the book of Revelation, knowing that this was their story. But what's really hard is what does it mean for us in the USA in 2004? What is the threat of our compromise? It's really dangerous to talk about, isn't it? Because it gets us into the culture we love, the government we love, the national goals we cherish. And we have to ask ourselves day after day, 
what in my culture is pressuring me to be unfaithful to Jesus Christ? And how can I be faithful witness for Christ in a culture not unlike this first century culture where the temptation is to fit in the material culture, to fit in the comfort zone, to give allegiance to authority even when it's wrong. Baptists have long, long fought for the right to say we must be faithful to Jesus Christ even in difficult situations. I'm not a prophet like John. But it is my duty to ask us to think deeply about this cultural conflict. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's a call to discipleship in the midst of difficulty. In the midst of the challenge to conform, to adopt values that may seem good to us, but do not really honor Jesus Christ. On the back of your outline is a little litany that we will now read together about our commitment. Jeanette will lead the people and I will function as the leader. And we'll read this litany together of our commitment to discipleship. Let us read together. Lord Christ, today you still walk among the golden lampstands, the living one, once dead, but now alive forever and ever. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we hear you calling us to be faithful disciples but we acknowledge that at times we follow you with lukewarm hearts. Restore our first love, the joy and freedom of your salvation. Hear Christ's promise. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the true tree of life. Lord, we are tempted by the attractions and the values of our world so that we put our trust in things that pass away. But you say to us that we are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Help us to accept the riches you offer that do not fade, and to commit to your ways of service and humility in all aspects of our lives. Hear Christ's promise. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Lord, Sometimes we are tempted not to be faithful to your name, even when we do not face persecution that threatens our lives. We pray for ourselves and for all our sisters and brothers around the world 
that we will not fear what can be done to the body. We pray that we will never hesitate to witness that you are the Lord of our lives and that this reality changes everything about how we live. Hear Christ's promise. Be faithful, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Those who are victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.